Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we're going to be talking with my colleague from R Street, Nick Zayas, about uh, Ayn Rand's favorite libertarian mode of transportation, which is high-speed rail. Uh, so, Nick, uh, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be here. We'll talk about transportation, trains, rail lines, with particular reference to a new project uh, that is underway or in the planning stages for Texas, uh, which is a little bit, this would be the Texas Central Project. It's a little bit different than a lot of projects in that most high-speed rail lines, well, all of them in the United States up to this point, have pretty much been government projects from start to finish. You know, I think of the rail line in California, for example, that supposed to be high-speed rail from Los Angeles to San Francisco Now it may end up being a high-speed rail from uh, Bakersfield to Fresno or something like that. (laughs) This particular project is a little bit different than that, just in terms of the more private nature of it. So can you just explain a little bit for the listeners, what is the Texas Central Project? So the Texas Central Project is a little bit different than any of the other projects that are floating around in America. It's the only one that uses its own right-of-way that's dedicated to the passenger railroad every other project in america shares track with freight railroads which means the trains have to be built to withstand being hit by a freight railroad train this project's a little bit different it runs on a a dedicated right-of-way it only carries passengers and it's going to be built in a place that has a whole lot of -of right-of-way already laid out um, that all they really need to do is buy the right-of-way build the track and, and they're mostly done so it's kind of an ambitious project, but it's an ambitious project that's going that's a viable project because Texas has a whole lot of pre-laid like pass for railroads to to run in. And so the the right of way is just some sort of legal permission to run trains through a, a, yeah. along a, a route. Yeah, it's it's effectively really long, long kind of narrow lots that are that usually in this case they're. Most of the path is on disused railroad right of way that were railroads and are now just kind of paths that are cut through the countryside that are either that either have utility transmission wires or pipelines or something like that in them right now. So it's, in this case, it's mostly they're not cutting new paths across Texas. So this is this would be a, a line from between Dallas and Houston, which for Texas travelers, well, Doug, you probably know this as well as anyway if you want to get from between dallas and houston how how do you do it doug well there's a few different ways so i'm actually uh, i have a law firm and i have an office in houston and dallas so i actually do this pretty often and there's a few different uh routes you can take by highway uh obviously you can do this by uh by by airplane right now uh if you don't want to drive you there's at least i think two luxury luxury bus lines that allow you to work 
while you are uh, commuting. So there's a few ways currently that you can do this. Um, personally, I tend to drive a lot just so I don't have to deal with TSA. Uh, but the traditional way between Houston and Dallas or vice versa would be uh, just jump on an airplane. Yeah. So this, I guess, would be so this would be an alternative both to the air, oh, airplane and also driving. How, how, how long does it take you to get from Houston to Dallas driving it? Uh, it takes about four hours, maybe five, depending on stops and traffic and such. Yeah, so that's not that's not great time. Uh, that's I mean, you can get from Austin to Dallas in less than four hours potentially. Even though I think it's clo- considerably closer between Houston and Dallas. I haven't looked at the the map, but um, it's something like two hundred and thirty miles yeah. on the road between the two cities. Like yeah. Okay. Now, mind, now, mind you, I'm coming from the. Uh, I live on the south side of Houston, so it takes me a good 45 minutes just to to get to uh, the center of the city in Houston. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Most mo- most of the trip between Houston and Dallas is in Houston. So. <laughs> yeah, and it should be noted that the Texas Central project ends at the Houston Beltway. Yeah. Where, um, so that it'll still be reliant on people heading into Houston via other means of transportation. Right. Once you get there, yeah, uh, this is, I, I think, one of the issues, which would also be true for air travel, is that, you know, if you're not taking a car into a place, once you get there, you have to figure out how you're going to travel around. Although within the subsidies are better than this than others in terms of buses or now you have Uber. It's not as yeah, absolutely it's you're, yeah. if you're still having to get to a station and at the end of the day, any any kind of not car mode of transportation, you have to get to a station. Right. I think you just uh, published an article about the federal permitting on this project. Tell us a little bit about that process. And if this is just a intrastate uh, line, why do we have to deal with federal permitting in the first place? Well, the federal permitting issue comes from the fact that realistically, passenger railroads are, re- are regulated by the FRA. But in this case, when you're laying track or relaying tracks, track where track once was, you have to get like pass through the federal environmental impact process and, and assessment process. In this case, this project has gotten all of the other DOT the approvals done, and it's waiting on the final approvals for the environmental statement. No one really knows how how long that's going to take. In a corridor as rich as with infrastructure as this one, it shouldn't take that long. I would imagine that the environmental impact of this shouldn't be that much different than any of the pipelines that are there or any of the highway projects that have been in the corridor. It's been dragging out for a number of years, but it's kind of very like a quintessential example of the federal infrastructure permitting process being a really slow and unpredictable process. They couldn't have said, known that when their DOT approvals were done, they were going to have to wait another year for uh, the EPA approvals. But in this case, they did. Other projects might go a little bit differently. And the administration's tried to do some work on permitting. Congress has talked about permitting reform, but so far there has been no action on really either of these. So we're kind of going to be stuck with expect with these proposals like the Texas Central waiting in a kind of bureaucratic purgatory that they can't really predict and their backers can't really predict. They can't really they can't raise money until the the environmental review is done and for pretty much any major infrastructure project. That's a problem. I wanted to ask about the the federal jurisdiction here. Southwest Airlines uh, originally the way that they got their start back before deregulation of the airlines so everything 
you know, back in the the bad old days of the of the 70s and before, if you were an airline, you basically there was a federal board that you had to go through when they regulated all aspects of the, you know, your service and routes and other things like that. And so to avoid that, Southwest, they started and they only did flights within intrastate flights. So I think they did Houston to Dallas and they did San Antonio. And by avoiding federal jurisdiction, they were able to offer much cheaper rates and that helped show the value potential for airline deregulation. Also, Texas has its own electric grid in ERCOT, and that, again, is an intrastate grid that exempts us from a lot of federal jurisdiction under the Federal Power Act. So if you have a, a train here that is completely intrastate, how is it that you still have federal jurisdiction? The biggest piece of this is actually the technology. The federal government regulates the safety standards for, for passenger trains, because until the last five years, there really weren't any proposals to do something like this. The federal kind of train agency was Amtrak. So you had a government regulator set up to regulate government agency just like say the postal service or any other of the other government corporations that exist but it, the previous government governing system really wasn't set up for the idea of upstart passenger rail it was it handles upstart freight rail short line railroads exist everywhere but what had happened is its regulations kind of fell behind the times so in this case the Texas Central is reliant on it an, ex- an exemption from regulation. They're getting effectively a exemption that allows them to use technology that wouldn't be compliant in America anywhere else because we don't have that type of right of way. There, nowhere else in America would have or is going to have just passengers on the railroads. Everywhere else in America has freight rail mixed with passenger rail, and that means different types of trains. So it kind of comes down to the fact that they're using a technology that doesn't exist in America for a reason because you have a government monopoly on the passenger railroads so this so this is how they're handling it and it's not particularly surprising that they got stuck in a quagmire that with them regulating a weird entity that, it, that they didn't know how to control so this administration prides itself on being focused on infrastructure and i also hear a lot about how this administration is really cutting down on regulations can you comment on how this administration compares to the obama administration on how you know are there are there you've already t- touched on this a little bit in terms of maybe they're not making as much progress on uh, regulatory reform but can you even tell a, a difference uh, on how quickly they're responding compared to say the prior administration under uh, President Obama I would say that th- that this administration's been a lot more kind of it, it gives a lot of the signs that you would you would hope for out of an administration that's supportive of innovative private infrastructure private trains are only kind of part of this grand equation of of America moving toward more private capital and its infrastructure investment. Texas has a lot of toll lanes and toll roads that are being built. So it's kind of coming along that exact same wave. That said, there's not a whole lot of evidence that permitting times are are a lot better the or that the administration hasn't advanced, say, rules that would, that would noticeably cut permitting times or cut anything that has to do with infrastructure. Realistically, the the most promising things that have come out, come through on this have been actually coming from Congress. The the Johnson McCaskill amendments to Map 20 or to the latest transportation legislation were really a positive sign. 
So maybe it's Congress that's going to lead on this. You've talked about how that this is a private project and how that there's existing right-of-ways. But isn't a big part of this going to rely on eminent domain and uh, using probably like the, the Supreme Court ruling of Kilo? I was about to say keto. It's a diet. Using <laughs> Kilo to uh, allow for this privately owned company to, to take private property for this project. This is, a, is kind of the big, scary libertarian question of any infrastructure project. Project. The, this project has a couple of qualities that make it a little bit easier. There might, as so everything I've read about about this project and other rail projects around America is that projects like this want to minimize the amount of land they have to take because they want to minimize the amount of track they actually physically have to build. They want to minimize the amount of new like new right of way that they have to cut because all of that adds costs on top of just buying the land. So that's why other projects have focused on running trains on an existing track that doesn't have to involve new land acquisitions. But in this case, if you look at a map for, for most of this project's long route, a lot of that is, and it stays pretty closely to existing utility corridors that are already just long lines of just empty patches of grass with trees on both sides. So that makes it really convenient. Texas has, or East Texas especially, has a lot of disused right of way, underused right of way. So it makes it, so it should make any of these eminent domain concerns at least less scary if there's less land in play that actually might need to be taken or might need to be de- be negotiated. Um, I believe that if you look at the Texas Central website, I mean, they are anticipating that they will use eminent domain. I think they sort of indicated they're still negotiating with some landowners, but they they even have a section on the use of eminent domain. They explain that that's something that they intend to do. Absolutely. No, like that, that, that's absolutely true. Pretty much every infrastructure project in some for some amount, amount of its length, the goal is like making sure this process is fair, making sure this process is, is used in the, lit- the most limited number of cases that it needs to be, that it's not being used to just be a negotiating tactic to underpay for people's property that or that the threat is being used to underpay for people's property. Yeah, I guess I would say, you know, there's two different issues when it comes to eminent domain. One is just the use of eminent domain in general uh, can be very fraught and controversial. The theory behind eminent domain is that when you have a big infrastructure project, if you are not able to use, if you don't have the prospect of eminent domain, you could get what's known as the holdout problem where one person realizes that you need their land and so they want a billion dollars for their, to use, use the right of way, can try and you wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be able to finish projects if you had to independently negotiate with everybody who could do that. That's the theory anyway. Cases like this, there's a there's an added complication, which is normally eminent domain is used by government for government. In the case of the Kelo decision that you're talking about, that was a case where eminent domain was being used by government, but on behalf of a, a private entity. Here in Texas, there are certain cases where a private company is able to use eminent domain on behalf of an infrastructure project that has that is what's known as a common carrier or open to the public. Uh, so for pipelines would be 
the most common example, where if you want to build a natural gas pipeline, you're a private company, you have the ability to use eminent domain in the construction of that if your pipeline is going to be open to anyone who wants to use it to move whatever the if it's a natural gas pipeline, you can't just use it to move your own product. You got to be able to have it open so that competitors can use it too. And I suppose that with the Texas Central, the since it's a passenger rail line, it presumably would count as a common carrier under that definition. That I don't know. I I'm not an expert in these provisions of the of the law, but it, it certainly this sort of use of eminent domain has been very controversial, even with the pipeline stuff. And I can only imagine that would be even more controversial if it's used by a private rail company. Yes, absolutely. And it, this project does have a couple of things that are going for it that make it a little bit less and less nasty than a lot of other kind of projects like this. It's on viaduct for most of its length when it's when it's being when it's going to be on land that's going to be over people's private land. That's a lot less impactful than say a surface level railroad. Viaduct is like the aqueduct. Yeah, it's it's a it's a road that's carried on on pillars, just like you know, say a bridge over over a river would be a viaduct over a river. But you can have you can have viaducts for train trains over land. Yeah, if you know Latin, it's self-explanatory. Viaduct. Yeah, I know this is a, a private enterprise, but is there not a risk that if the ridership doesn't meet projections, that there could ultimately be some type of uh, governmental bailout, either for operating or or for even maybe not maybe not for completing the project, but for even operating costs. That's the fear that any kind of fiscal conservative should have uh, for a project like this. That's a, like the exact correct read that on on this from a fiscally conservative standpoint. That said, there if it's just a standard infrastructure project, that right of way that the track that they build is not going to go away, and it's going to be worth a lot of money. Being given that. Even if it's not used as, say, the high-speed Shinkansen rail line that they build it for, that's still valuable train track that could be used by someone else. So even if it does go belly up, that's still a track that could be sold off and used by just by by someone else to, say, haul freight if they really, really want to in the worst-case scenario. There is definitely a fear of operating subsidies. It's for any kind of service, just like transit. Once people get used to it, it's hard to make it go away. That said, if it's losing a lot of money, it would be really, really challenging for any like city government or state government to really justify ongoing subsidies for something like this. Yeah, and I will say my impression is at least for now like this project is not really wedded to the political fortunes of any office holders. So if it were to go bust, I don't know that there would be a huge incentive for them to try and bail it out. And it's not like it's not like a case with the with the banks or even if you it's, it's not a situation where it would be some sort of disaster if it stopped operating. People would just be able to go back to the prior ways that they had gotten from between Dallas and Houston, your yeah. luxury. And at the end of the day, this yeah. this like the viability of this railroad is really kind of dependent on how nasty it is to get between Dallas and Houston, and how much the two, the regions grow. The, the two regions grow. If they both grow right. a lot and they don't add more highway lanes, people will be forced onto this railroad whether they like it or not. If they right. build a whole but bunch it, of highway lanes, then the problem's solved. 
Like, yeah, but built into that are some assumptions about where technology is going. So at this point, we're talking about the uh, the alternatives being rail line, drive yourself, get on a bus. But it's not unimaginable in the relatively near term that maybe I'm going to be riding in a AV vehicle, uh, autonomous vehicle, and maybe that autonomous vehicle is a bus, and that could be going uh, in a dedicated lane that is also maybe just as fast as a bullet train and uh, is crazy and sci-fi as this may sound, uh, Bell Helicopter in Fort Worth is working on uh, AV commuter helicopters. So if if that type of technology is out there, you know, maybe this maybe this is a public policy issue, maybe it's not, maybe it's just an investor issue, but is is this a good bet that this is the type of technology that people will want and the ridership will be there say not just for the next 5 years but for the next 10 years, 30, 50 years? I don't know. I'm pretty bearish on TSA changing anytime soon. So give so at least like standard airport is probably not going to get that much better. Um, if AV tech does get dramatically better, dramatically faster, maybe we, maybe it does erode that. But maybe it also just causes a whole lot of de- of development in between and makes traffic really hellish. That to the point where it makes the commute the drive even longer. So predicting the long run AV. Um, kind of patterns of how AVs are going to affect how we develop is really a kind of up in the air question. We have no idea whether it's going to make people more urban or more rural, maybe or in between. That said, this track being cut is is not going to disappear if the company goes bankrupt. So at least it's there. And if not, then there there will probably be some demand for for some subsidies for commuters for travel between Dallas and Houston. The question is really what form it takes. Well, Nick, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure.